Welcome to Chromodiversity, a podcast for clinicians, therapists, and families about common genetic diversity in children and adults. I'm Elliot Pollack, founder of the Chromodiversity Foundation, and I'll be your host. Toby Whittington is an internationally awarded social entrepreneur based in Perth, Australia, and he happens to have an extra X chromosome, something he hasn't hesitated to talk about in interviews by various business magazines that have featured him. Toby co-founded Green World Revolution in 2012. It's a social enterprise designed to help alleviate poverty by creating new jobs for long-term unemployed people while helping to solve urban environmental problems. He's a recipient of a 40 Under 40 Business Award and a Westpac Social Change Fellowship. And his company's latest product has been recognized internationally with the Best at Home Innovation Award in the 2022 Vertical Farming World Awards. He's been refocusing his business on the recycling of waste plastic lids to manufacture them into new products. And prior to all of this, he had also worked as a street performer and has been a fashion designer. Hello, Toby. How are you? Hi. That was a great introduction. How old were you when you found out you had a genetic difference? And how did you find out? I was 32, so that was 13 years ago. I think I probably found out in a way that a lot of people find out about Kleinfelter syndrome is when they're trying to have children picked up through blood work or through looking at looking at a sperm sample. I was trying to have children with my uh, then wife and it wasn't working for months at a time and it never really occurred to me that it might the issue might rest with me. It turned out to be me i don't think it's anyone's fault i think it's just a fact of life and and i'm really pleased actually that i found out when you found out how did it make you feel shocked and also kind of relieved in lots of ways being able to look at the different sort of symptoms or cluster of symptoms around xxy and Kleinfelder's syndrome and actually going through quite a large list and going yes 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 to all of these things i'd experienced in my life and suddenly having a kind of reason for that at the time what were you told well i was notified over the telephone uh, about a week after i did my sperm sample and then I got a phone call at about quarter past five on a Thursday afternoon. And then they told me I was born sterile and I had an extra chromosome and I'd need to see a specialist. And uh, good luck to me, pretty much, was what the call went through. And I thought that that was awful. You know, it was such a, a bad way to be treated. When being delivered this news that has changed absolutely every aspect of my entire life, How is it that it changed so many aspects of your life? I think that we change as people, uh, depending on the circumstance or situations or context we're in. And so as we learn more insight and information about who we are and what makes us up as people, we have an opportunity to change and grow. And, and that's what I did. It answered so many questions about who I was previously mm. that I got quite excited about, I guess, finding out who I could be, you know, with that new knowledge. I was also put on testosterone pretty much immediately, and that physically started changing my life from the first shot of it, within hours of the first shot of it. I went through a time when I was, if I go back to my 
teenage years when I should have been going through puberty, I felt like something was missing in my head and missing in me. And I tried to explain it to people from when I was about 13 years old. I tried to explain that I felt like something was missing. You know, I just thought I was going through teenage angst at the time uh, and existential crisis of, of teenagehood like everyone else seemed to be. And all my adult life, I tried to describe this to people and would say, you know, it's like someone is standing behind me or there's something on my back, but the, it's an absence of a thing. I turn around and, and nothing is there. So when I was diagnosed and put on testosterone, they checked my testosterone levels and um, my testosterone level at the time was 3.5 units. And um, the average of someone my age for a 32 year old was between 12 and a half and 32 units. So my 3.5 was abysmal. And they put me on a double dose in half the time, like a strong dose twice in a row and within two hours of my first shot of having the testosterone I was back in my little fashion studio on the sewing machine and I remember the moment that uh, that feeling that I'd carried since I was 13 completely disappeared that feeling of something missing in me was gone and I've never felt that since in 13 years and within two weeks of having the shots God, I remember nearly falling off a chair in a meeting when I brushed past my arm and uh, this great big bicep muscle on my left arm, you know, my, my weaker side. And I'd never been able to put on muscle ever in my whole life. I've, I've tried to work out, go to gyms. When I was a teenager, I used to stay awake all night and do push-ups and sit-ups and try and like bulk up because everyone else around me seems so bulky. Yeah, two, two weeks on testosterone, I wasn't even working out or anything. And I'd grown bicep muscles. It was, it was amazing. So I went through a very swift and full-on physical change. That's the other thing. The other thing that happened with taking testosterone is that I found a confidence, which I didn't have before. I've since come to realise more so that... Um, I, I was not a very confident person as a teenager and as a young adult. And so much like, you know, I only just learned to drive three years ago in my 40s. I used to tell people the reason I didn't have my licence was it was an environmental decision. But if I'm honest with myself now, I really recognise that in actual fact, I was too nervous and not confident enough to get behind the wheel. That's been a huge change in my life is finding an inner confidence, which perhaps matches my external extrovert nature. I think people see me as quite an extroverted person, so they don't realise that there's quite a, an unconfident being inside. I felt entirely different to everyone else around me my entire life and as a child. And... Um, I just thought I functioned differently and thought about things differently and felt about things differently to others. I also kind of um, never really had any sort of sense of my own being as someone that has a gender, you know, you know, as a gendered person. I didn't feel like a boy. And when I was a young adult, I never really felt like a man. And I, it's part of my um, realizations or self-realizations around this issue of being confident where I, even though I'm a, I'm a giant person and always have been really much taller than everyone around me on the inside I felt like a little little tiny timid unconfident being and shy and and anxious and nervous even though 
I've always, particularly since high school, I guess I learned to cope by being quite extroverted and a little bit weird and a bit out there. So that, you know, I think that was a really good coping strategy. How is it that at one point you became a street performer? I did Living Statue as a performance and you wear a costume and a mask and everything with that. So you're quite kind of removed in lots of ways from actually giving of yourself, you're, you're, you become a character. But I've always been fascinated in human dynamics and people and psychology and, and the relationships between people. And also, I really didn't know what I wanted to do when I left high school. I repeated year 12. I had major learning difficulties in both primary school and high school. What did you struggle most with? Oh, reading and writing and literature was the biggest things. And spelling, I've always been terrible at spelling. And even now, you know, I, I tend to, if I do handwriting, I tend to uh, handwrite all in capitals because that's the only way I can kind of guarantee that I won't mix capitals and lowercase really weirdly when I write. So I've kind of taught myself to manage those issues. In high school, my English literature was so awful that my English teacher came to me and said, there's no way you're ever going to pass high school with this and you need some tutoring for a year. And so I actually, I did year 12 twice. I just went the second year, I did two units. I think I did art and, and literature to help me just to pass high school. I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do when I left high school. And I was so, you know, not confident to go and actually get a job with anyone else. I think kind of now I read more about people with Kleinfelder syndrome or XXY. And I think there's a lot of people who work or end up working in positions where they're not around lots of people, where they are kind of socially isolated or, or career isolated. And I think that that's what I was doing um, just because I wasn't confident to be able to kind of go and live properly. So what did you enjoy most as a kid? Spaghetti bolognese. <laughs> I love spaghetti bolognese. Yeah, look, I always loved art. I knew from an early age I wanted to be an artist from when I was about seven. I remember the day that that happened was I had done this beautiful picture of a, a hibiscus in watercolour and everyone gave me such wonderful feedback. I just thought it was great. It filled me with glee to have all of my peers in my class really, you know, gelling on what I'd done. We had a school in a warehouse um, down in the city, so it was a very urban situation. And I used to go and sit on the top of the cubby house wall and catch the morning sun at 10 a.m. in the morning because um, if you played down on the ground, the sun wouldn't come till lunchtime. So I would spend my morning teas sitting in the sun and warming up like a lizard, really, a sunbathing lizard, and uh, would watch everyone from above. And on that day, I remember sitting there and just uh, thinking, yeah, that was it. I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be creative. When I grew up, that's what I wanted to do. In hindsight, do you see a relationship between your strengths and struggles with your genetic difference? Well, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think one of my, you know, superhero powers might be that I have an innate ability to 
read what is happening with relationships with people and to understand the, the dynamics of human relating. And I've always, since I was a kid, had that ability to have a kind of observe, observed insight into what's going on. Nature and nurture and nature work together, so there's some to do some influence of the environment and, and being a living statue, street performer, for 10 years performing around the world, it's entirely based on observing people and being able to preempt what they're going to do and then being able to interact with them in such a way that they do what I want them to do. Yeah, I learned a lot about the behaviour of people doing that. How supportive were your parents of your strengths? And to what extent do you think they realised that you potentially had some differences? Well, my folks have always been very encouraging with the creative side of things in my life. And always, you know, whatever I've been into, my dad is always tearing a bloody newspaper article out for me in whatever I'm interested in. Sometimes he's a bit off the beat with that, but... Um, you know, he's done that since I was a young person. My mum's been the same. She's very creative. They both have a history of self-employment. Um, so I kind of grew up with self-employed parents. As a baby, they had a market stall there. So I kind of grew up around this sort of um, self-made type attitude or, you know, self-employment attitude. Um, apart from my learning difficulties, you know, being late to read and difficult spelling and that sort of stuff as a child, I don't think anyone really noticed any kind of observable difference from me to anyone else. And I know when I was diagnosed and I've spoken to my parents about it, they didn't think anything was different about me in any way. I mean, you know, even, even my mum said... You know, as a baby, I always had a always had a big erect penis as a baby and, and there was no kind of sign of anything wrong with your genitals, or, you know, like. So, yeah, they just thought I was a normal, maybe slightly quieter kid, I guess. But I've always yeah. been also in touch with my, my feelings and emotions and being able to express feelings and emotions in a way that's different, you know, sensitive in a way that's different to other kids boys of my age. If you could go back to the moment of your birth and a genetic test had existed then, would you have wanted to be diagnosed at birth? Absolutely. Hands down, absolutely. Why? You know, my whole, you know, the, the, uh, the positive change that's come out of diagnosis, I would have loved to have had diagnosis as a child before I hit puberty, you know, and even to have then, then had the opportunity to have testosterone um, as per a normal child, you know, that would have been amazing. I was bullied in high school and always different and bullied like I was gay or a hippie or, you know, like just, just horrible kind of stuff because I was different to other people. And I think, yeah, had I known why I was so different, that would have been so much better for my life. I think it's a good thing because I think the more insight you have into who you are biologically as much as psychologically is good. And if you've got a child that's diagnosed in utero or in early life with XXY, 
then you as parents can also work with that child to make sure they've got a really great life. Yeah, I don't think people need to be scared about having a child with XXY or a chromosomal difference. I just think it actually makes us really different and unique people and you have a different sort of relationship with a child like that. And I don't think it's a disability in any way. Of course, there's the aspect of not being able to have children. And when I found out, I did go into quite a few years of, of deep mourning and depression around those feelings associated with that, which is funny because I always thought when, when we were trying to have a child and when I'd been asked if I wanted to have children in my life, I always said, you know, well, if it happens, great, and if it doesn't, it'll be okay. <clears throat> but then to find out in such a fine art way that it would never happen, yeah, I did, I did definitely mourn the loss of the potential of that particularly because everyone's always told me what a great parent I'd be, what a great father I'd be, how great I am with children, you know. So, it's, yeah, there was a kind of a, a loss around that experience. If you knew about it earlier, you would just manage the expectations around that. Did you consider alternatives for parenthood like adoption or IVF? or MTs, which is a technology that sometimes allows biological children? Yes, we considered it. The, the specialist told me that um, at the family planning thing, just straight after diagnosis, the, the people that rang me up and said I had this, they said, um, you know, that there was a small chance that I may have produced one or two sperm in my life. And that they could do a biopsy on my testicles to find them. And I was like, you know, knowing that the, the regular, normal XY guy would ejaculate 5 million sperm at a hit. Uh, when they told me this, I said, well, what are you talking about? One or two million, one or two hundred thousand, one or two, you know, what, what one or two are you talking about? You know, and, and when? And they said, yeah, just one or maybe two actual sperm in your life. And I was like, well, how much does that cost? And they told me it's about four and a half thousand dollars. I said, you've got to be joking. You know, I'm 30 years old. If I had one or two sperm, they're long gone. You know, good luck trying to find them. I just thought that was ridiculous. And I think that's a great way for the doctors to renovate their bathrooms that year, you know, off the back of someone's hope for trying to find one or two sperm, that's totally, yeah. So we looked into maybe adopting, but adopting as well is fraught with problems. There's lots of people want children. There's not enough children. It's all really expensive. We looked into getting a sperm donor. I actually asked my brother if he would donate sperm, but he wasn't into that idea. I thought that would be good because of the genetic similarity. And then we found someone who did offer some sperm, a friend, and we did it at home, uh, you know, like turkey basing style. Uh, that was a fascinating and strange experience. I'm glad I went through it. You know, he and his wife were in the lounge room and, and they did their thing and she came down with the little cup and then me and my wife were in the bedroom and we did our thing with the cup. And it was a very loving and, and a very close kind of intimate experience but after a couple of goes at it that was when for me I started to shift my own perception about what I wanted in my life partly it was 
it was it was stressful, you know, that we would do that and then you'd have to wait and then, like, the time when the period is due, uh, you know, the anxiety around that would be there and if it was, you know, if the period was late by an hour, you know, suddenly, yes, it's worked and then the period comes and then the depression, you know, it was just like this kind of cascade of, of mixed emotions during that whole process. And then we'd have to wait another month to, to give it a go or another couple of months. And so, yeah, I decided after, I think we did that three times, uh, um, that I didn't want to have children, actually, that, that if I couldn't have my own children, I didn't want to have children at all. And I think that was very hard on my wife at the time. Uh, and definitely created a rift between us. Um, but I just think there's other ways to have an impact in the world. There's other ways to make a contribution to the world. And um, we don't all have to have children, you know. And even now, I mean, gosh, the, the world is moving into a severe climate catastrophe. Do we want to be bringing more children into this or is it better to actually kind of look at other ways of having a positive impact on that and be here for all those kids that may well need us sometime in the future may well need adults around that don't have their own kids you know so I started to see it in those sort of bigger picture terms and made the decision that I wouldn't have children that's been I mean, even now, like 13 years on, and um, I'm still filled with uh, a hole of grief and sadness, a pit of sadness around that um, loss of potential. And it, it comes up sometimes and I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, that's, those feelings are still all, they're still all there, you know, it hasn't even though I've made a decision not to have children, it hasn't shifted the, the loss of that and the loss of that decision. Is there somehow a link between the two that, in a way, by discovering your differences and also the challenges you faced, you've turned them into something positive? Yeah, it's totally linked. It's absolutely linked. I realised when I decided not to have children and that I wouldn't have children in my life is that if I wanted to have an impact in the world in the same sort of way, in the same vein that people do when they do have children, because, uh, you know, you see people have children, they pour their whole, they pour their everything into those kids, their whole life experience, their whole passion, their whole lives become revolving around those children in their lives and all their hopes and dreams and everything is become embedded into those beings that they're bringing into the world for the next 20 years or, or beyond. And uh, I realised, well, you know, if I'm going to have an impact that comes close to that, then I would have to do something pretty big in my own lifetime via my own hand. And at the time I was running a fashion label and I just won a scholarship and studied haute couture in Paris at a postgraduate level. And I realised, you know, if I wanted to be as good as the people who were teaching me fashion in Paris, it was 10 or 15 years in the studio on my own. 
And at the same time, I'd just been on testosterone for about a year and a half. And I was jumping out of my skin with energy and, and muscles and physicality. And, you know, like I wanted to be out in the world. Um, and then this realisation of, you know, have an impact that's, that's bigger, create something much bigger than myself to impart that positive impact in the world. So that's where the charity Green World Revolution came from, was born out of that uh, desire to have a bigger impact and, and help other people. And particularly what we decided to focus on is long-term unemployed people. Um, you know, for long-term unemployed people, there's, the more they're unemployed, the more unemployable they become over time. And so the attitude of, you know, they should just get a job is kind of a mute point because for a lot of people who are long-term unemployed, there are no jobs they can get. So in order to help those people, we need to create new jobs for them. That's where uh, Green World Revolution came along is, is, you know, actually make new jobs for people that that don't have skills in it and, and then train people into those skills, you know, and choose things that are beneficial to the environment. So, yeah, that's where we where it was born out of those ideas. And now, of course, we're working on recycled plastics. And this is a huge problem. The plastic pollution problem is a massive intractable problem on the planet right now. And again, we're wanting to create jobs for people and create systems that can help deal with this big environmental issue. People with neurodivergences can have significantly higher rates of unemployment. And chromodiversity is often linked to various neurodivergences. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. I've often, uh, often wondered over the last 10 years whether there is a correlation, and I can see anecdotally there's a correlation mm. between chromo chromodiversity and unemployment and poverty. So on our own projects, we worked with 150 long-term unemployed people over two years. And in that time, I met uh, one person with Turner's syndrome, which is X0, and yeah. one other person with Kleinfelder's XXY, mm. and myself. So mm. that's a population of 150 long-term unemployed people. If you extrapolate that out to 1,000, that's about like 10 people in 1,000, which is 10 times the population average, apparently. As I said, it's anecdotal evidence. However, given the diversity of people that we were engaged with, it's pretty striking. I found with my own education, I mean, I was lucky enough to go to alternative schools. I went to alternative schools in primary school and two different alternative schools in high school. And I guess I was encouraged in lots of ways to be creative and follow my path and dreams and do anything I want in life, which I did. But, you know, I also struggled with, with learning difficulties and failed year 12 and, and didn't do a TEE, you know, university entrance. Had I been in the mainstream system, you know, I would have just fallen through all the gaps. Someone wouldn't have come and said, you need tutoring. I just would have been left to fail and would have ended up potentially where some of the people we've worked with have ended up, yeah. you know, long-term unemployed. Whereas, you know, because I got into um, self-employment and performance and things, that really, really saved me being able to make my own living. Thank you for listening to this first of two episodes with Toby Whittington, 
a successful social entrepreneur and well-known public figure from Perth, Australia, who has not hesitated to speak openly about his common but rarely discussed genetic difference over the past decade. As you heard, his diagnosis was a life-changing event in almost every way, unlocking new possibilities for growth and a powerful drive to make purposeful change in the world. At the same time, it triggered grief for all that was lost due to the lack of early detection, lack of early information as to what to expect, and unnecessary shock and confusion when he was finally diagnosed due to insufficient healthcare provider guidance. As a result, he calls for systematic screening at birth and better healthcare provider awareness. Perhaps the biggest takeaway comes from Toby's experience of having created hundreds of jobs for long-term unemployed people. Rates of long-term unemployment and poverty are likely higher for people with chromodiversity, and Toby's ultimate success is a testament that proactive support during childhood, such as parents that encourage strengths and schools that accommodate needs, can go a long way to avoiding adverse lifelong outcomes. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please show your support by donating today. With your help, we will ensure an easy listening experience so you can access engaging and authoritative information on common genetic diversity in children and adults, notified to you weekly in your inbox. Tune in next week for the second part of my conversation with Toby, featuring urgent, practical, and inspirational takeaways on how to turn an unexpected diagnosis into a life-affirming positive journey. And have a wonderful day.